0: From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Thanks for tuning in. There is a lot of substance in this week's episode, so I want to dive right in. I think we need to talk about dairy farming. Every year, we as Americans consume an average of 653 pounds of dairy per person, and that is actually increasing. And we spend around $452 on dairy products each year. Dairy is about as ubiquitous as it can get. Unless you're a vegan or have milk allergies or lactose intolerance, your fridge probably has at least a few dairy products in it right now. We are going to take an up-close look at the dairy industry in the Catskills today because it has both a long and storied history and some serious problems right now that are worth discussing. We're going to be breaking this conversation into two parts— And in the next one, we're going to be focusing on how we can help local dairy farmers from a policy standpoint, but today we're going to talk to Sullivan County historian John Conway and local farmer and agriculture expert Amy Irwin to help get a better sense of where the local dairy industry is at and how we got here in the first place. As a jumping off point, I want to give you a little bit of background about dairy farming because I think it'll help inform our conversations with our guests today. The Sullivan County dairy industry is struggling, and as with many other topics we discuss on this show, this is emblematic of the industry across so much of rural America. In the early 20th century, this area was covered in thousands of dairy farms. As of 2017, there were 12 in Sullivan County, and we may have lost a couple since then. The ones that are still in business are rarely profitable. We're going to talk a lot about dairy pricing today and you don't have to be an expert on economics or agriculture to get a handle of how it all works. But to start off, you need to know that the units for dairy aren't actually gallons or liters, but rather something called a hundredweight. That just means a hundred pounds of milk. Farmers sell and processors buy milk by the hundredweight. One of the reasons I'm so interested in this topic is related to the buying and selling of milk and the price discrepancies between the two. If you wanted to buy 100 pounds worth of milk at the store, it would come out to around 11.6 gallons. And according to February 2021 dairy prices in upstate New York were around $3.55 a gallon, you'd end up paying around $41.29. New York farmers, on the other hand, are paid about $18 for every 100 pounds of milk they produce. So a little bit less than half of what it would cost us to buy it. And that price that farmers get fluctuates a lot more than you'd expect. Last year, the price was as low as $12 per hundredweight and as high as about $20 per hundredweight. Even smaller dairy farms produce thousands of pounds of milk every single day. So a dairy farmer's income is anything but fixed. Worse yet, when we factor in the costs of producing milk, New York State dairy farmers actually had a net loss of about $9 per hundredweight As of 2018, in fact, dairy farmers in every one of the top 19 milk producing states in the country were operating at a loss in that year, except California, where farmers turned a profit of an average of about 23 cents per hundredweight. This brings me to supply and demand. I want you to keep the principles of supply and demand in the back of your head as we move through these discussions today and how they influence prices. If it's been a while since you read up on microeconomics, stick with me here for a quick refresher. Okay, let's say you're selling apples, and all of a sudden people discover the world's best apple pie recipe. As the demand for apples goes up, so does the price, which signals to people not to buy more apples than they need because everyone else wants apples too, and there's only so much supply. Alternatively, if people discover that apple pie may cause cancer and they start making peach pies instead, the price of apples goes down, which encourages people to buy more apples. You could look at this from the supply side as well. If you own an orchard and discover a scientific advancement that makes your apple trees produce twice as many apples as usual, but the demand for apples hasn't changed, the price will go down again to encourage folks to buy up your big stash of apples. On the other hand, if there's a big frost in the spring that significantly diminishes your apple crop in the fall and demand for apples doesn't really change, the price of apples will go up, causing people to purchase fewer apples again. This is the dance of commodity markets. Dairy, as we'll hear about today, doesn't actually follow that dance here in the United States, which is one of the things that makes this topic so strange and interesting. Dairy prices don't emerge as much as they're set. And as I ask our guests about markets and regulation and whatnot today, I just want to be clear that I am neither a laissez-faire free market advocate, nor am I trying to encourage heavy dairy market regulations. I'm just trying to get a sense of how all of this works. Of course, it would be imprudent to draw conclusions about what's happening with our dairy industry without understanding the story of how we got to this point.
1: I'm John Conway. I'm the Sullivan County historian, and I've been the historian since 1993. And I'll just throw in as an aside, that's longer than anyone has ever been Sullivan County historian. I hope I'm not jinxing myself by saying that. <laughs>
0: If you've ever had the pleasure of speaking with John Conway before, you'll know that he loves all things Sullivan County history. So, needless to say, we immediately got off topic. I'll skip through most of it here for time's sake, but here's a quick Sullivan County fun fact.
1: Uh, a lot of the best stuff that I, that that fascinates me is is learning a, a tiny piece that Sullivan County might have played in in some great advancement, like. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is the laser. Uh, today, lasers are part of almost everything that we do. Uh, we take them for granted. But uh, if you go back to the 1950s, there there wasn't even the the term laser wasn't even used. Scientists were working on masers, uh, and they had this conference, it, which ended up being at the Schwanga Lodge in in uh, Mamikating. And that was the first time that scientists got together and discussed the possibility of, of what became the laser. And shortly thereafter, the first laser was demonstrated and you know, the seeds were definitely planted at that conference. And, and the, there are books written about the laser now that, that credit that conference as the conference that changed the world.
0: Okay, back to Derry. According to John, the beginning of the local dairy industry had its roots in railroads and tuberculosis. Just stick with us here for a second.
1: I'm a firm believer that, that there's something in the environment here that uh, for thousands of years probably has played a role in, in uh, enhancing creativity and wellness. And, you know, those are things that we're, we're just discovering now. But I th- I think they've been here all along. Hmm. Nobody, nobody talked about them. I think there were people that knew it kind of intuitively. For example, they sent the tuberculosis patients here and whatnot. Um, they didn't really know exactly why tuberculosis patients fared better in Sullivan County than they did almost anywhere else. But now we have we have data, we have scientific uh, evidence that you know for evergreen forests and mountain air are, are conducive to, uh, boosting the immune system and, and so on. So, um, there were there was this intuitive understanding. And of course the railroad picked up on that in, you know, for 50 years, probably they, they advertised, doctors say, go to the mountains. Hmm. And, um, what, what was it that the mountains provided? They, they told you in the ad, pure air, pure water, pure milk not to dismiss the, the part about tuberculosis either, because that really played a, a huge part in in the dairy industry, uh, because milk was a, was a primary means of, of, uh, of transmitting that disease, uh, which was the scourge uh, of the world up until really the middle of the 20th century. But certainly uh, between 1700 and 1900, As we we see the growth of urbanization and 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 more densely populated areas, Uh, the death toll was staggering. Uh, A billion people died in in that two hundred year period. Wow! People died from tuberculosis, and it was easily transmitted through milk. So, one of the things that uh, became very important in those early days. was to have a certified herd so your herd was was uh, regularly inspected uh, tested for tuberculosis and whatnot and then of course uh, as I think' we'll, we'll talk about later we will will discuss the role that pasteurization played but the attractive thing about pasteurization really was that it it killed the tubercular bacillus that was in in the milk in, ca- in case it was there so, So New York state, for example, jumps on that. And the state law then requires that farmers pasteurize their milk before they sell it. And most of the small farmers are put out of business by that law. They can't afford to buy pasteurization equipment.
0: How did dairy farming take hold in in this area?
1: Well, certainly as a commercial enterprise, uh, it was really the railroad, um, and again it was the conditions of the day. So New York City, uh, and again we're talking about raw milk. So the life, the shelf life of raw milk is probably measured in hours. You know, literally it doesn't last a day before it starts to to go bad, and it w- it was a primary source of of disease. So you had to there was no refrigeration and no pasteurization, so New York City used to produce its own milk, as most places had to be because you couldn't transport it.
0: But How the did they produce milk inside the city?
1: Yeah, they had. There were cows there, you know. The, there were farms in the Bronx, and you know, it wasn't like the city today. Right, right. We're talking about early nineteenth nineteenth century. Um, there were farms around, but but all the cows were located within the city, and then. When the railroads began transporting the milk, they they had crude ways of keeping it cold, and so there was a, a certain window that you had. Um, Solomon County, Delaware County was probably the the farthest that you could get milk into the city uh, without it spoiling, and so the railroad comes in 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 uh, you know the early eighteen seventies, uh, and we're primarily talk about the O&W since that was the railroad that served the central part of Sullivan County. As late as um, 1879, uh, there were still only a handful of dairy farmers in the county. So you have to remember that it was almost impossible to make a living farming in Sullivan County. There were thousands of farms, but they were mostly all subsistence farms. So none of them were really commercial ventures are very few of them most of them couldn't afford to have a herd of cattle to produce milk um, so they'd have they'd have a few cows for themselves but once the railroad opens up the market in new york city we see the rise of farms so uh, we see that by uh, by 1880 when they formed the uh, solomon county milk association we've got about 2500 dairy cows in the county so that's really kind of the start of it all uh,
0: now what is the Sullivan County milk Association
1: well basically what it's it sounds like it's a it was a cooperative that you know <laughs> the, the farmers got together uh, they elected officers of this group and the the idea was that they would all kind of sell their milk for the same price they would demand the same freight terms there were no individual deals being made uh, they were a group and and I think prior to that, we had, uh, we we were shipping maybe 275 cans of milk a day down to the city, and by the 1890s, uh, you know, we're shipping 17,000 cans a week, probably. I think uh, it probably peaks in the early 1900s. In the six-year period between 1895 and 1901, uh, we shipped. 90 million gallons of milk to New York City. So an average of about 15 million gallons a year. As late as 1940, we were still producing 9 million gallons a year in Sullivan County. Seven or seven and a half million of that was sold as fluid milk. But again, that's a a pretty big decrease from shipping 15 million gallons to New York City. So, you know, it there was this rise and fall of the industry. And I think, as I mentioned to you when we were chatting earlier, the the rise of of, uh, pasteurization and, of course, refrigeration, that made the the necessity of having farms nearby less important, but also the the state law that farmers pasteurize their milk put a lot of the small farmers out of business.
0: So the rise of dairy farming in the area, we can really point directly to the railroad coming in.
1: Absolutely. Without the railroad, you know, we have a few subsistence farms here and that's it. Uh, but with Please. the railroad and the, and the market that it opened up, we see people, uh, you know, a large number of farmers go out. They buy these um, largely Holstein cows. They create their herds out of Holsteins were the most popular brand. So milk was a huge thing for the railroad. They made a lot of money. They charged about, uh, in the beginning, they were charging about 40 cents uh, per 10 gallon can to ship it. And then uh, in 1880, they wanted to raise the price to 50 cents a can. And that that was the impetus behind the formation of the, the Sullivan County Milk Association. One of the things that we see happening in the county through the 19th century and into the 20th century is that we see fewer and fewer farms in the county, operating farms. Um, They drop pretty steadily. Uh, Still by by 1900, we've got about 3,900 farms in the county operating. But um, earlier we'd had
0: Wait, three thousand nine hundred farms just in yeah. Sullivan County alone.
1: Yes, yes, and that's a that's a low. That that had that had been a severe decrease from just a few years earlier. What we see happening is that the farms there are fewer farms, but they get bigger for a time. So obviously, some some more successful farmers are are gobbling up smaller farms. So they're averaging. I, I have those exact numbers. I could give them here. We go. Um, So in 1880, there were uh, 4,394 farms in Sullivan County. Wow. Uh, The average farm was 107 acres. By 1890, so 10 years later, the number of farms had decreased to 4,096, but the average size of the farm had increased slightly to 112 acres. In 1900, there were 3887, about 3900 farms, and the average farm was 123 acres.
0: So, as time goes on, these farms are kind of le- starting to leverage economies of scale, where they discover that as maybe they have, and I guess this is a question for you. I mean, was a better technology that allowed them to become bigger and bigger over time, and then you know they can make more milk cheaper?
1: Sure, and I think the other thing is that the the larger farms uh, were able to better weather the vagaries of the market so because they had more cash on hand. uh, They also were able to afford the latest equipment, as you said, advancements in technology. So for example, when the the pasteurization laws come into effect, the larger farms purchase the pasteurization equipment. Small farms can't do that. So by 1940, we're down to 2,700 farms, and and that trend of, of them getting larger and larger had reversed because now land has become much more valuable to develop than it is to farm. So the average farm was only about 90 acres at that point.
0: I just want to highlight that that is a dizzying number of farms. After the interview, I was curious about how much of Sullivan County's land area was covered by dairy farms at their peak in the late 1800s. So there were 4,394 farms, averaging 107 acres each. There are 640 acres in a square mile, and Sullivan County is 997 square miles in size. So when you crunch the numbers there, it turns out that about 732 of Sullivan County's 997 square miles would have been devoted entirely to dairy farming in 1880. That is almost three-quarters of all the land in the county. I also wanted to pause here to quickly explain what I mean by economies of scale, if you're not familiar with the term. All I'm getting at is that big farms can produce dairy cheaper than small farms simply because their operations are bigger, and they can produce more milk more efficiently than small farms. This principle is essentially why mom-and-pop stores have Gone out of business for the most part, while Walmarts are all over the place. Anyway, moving on with the story of dairy in the Catskills. John says that once pasteurization laws were passed both at the city and state levels in the 1910s and 20s, the need for milk to come to the city from close geographical proximity essentially dried up. It was then possible, and profitable, to load train cars full of milk cans from larger farms on the flat grasslands of the Midwest, and ship them hundreds of miles to New York City without the milk spoiling.
1: By the '40s, you know, we, we had we had already begun to. There are farm reports where you can. They've already begun to talk about the farms that are going out because of that. And of course, refrigeration uh, again changes things. And and the railroad was also declining in importance. Um, you know, the passenger travel, for example, on the O and W railroad. Uh, began to decline after 1913, so that was the peak. And you know, we we haven't talked about the value-added products, but uh, you know, that was an early realization that if you if you created uh, these creameries where the farmers could bring their milk, and um, and there were also cheese factories where they, you know, you needed you needed a to age the cheese, but uh, the creameries would make butter and condensed milk. Things like that. One of the big problems with the creameries was that, again, the cost of the equipment. And some of the big machinery manufacturers in the Midwest convinced the farmers to invest in, you know, the latest technology. They bought this equipment on time, you know, uh, paid for it in installments, and uh, they they go out of business because they can't make the payments on the. Uh, and what we see happening then is that larger creameries from Brooklyn and Jersey and they buy up all you know if a creamery was at all viable they would buy it up because again it's the economy of scale so you know even in my lifetime you you gradually see one by one the farms uh go out of business.
0: a baseline understanding of how the local dairy industry came to be, and how it was undone in the mid-20th century. That brings us to times in more recent memory. And who better to tell us about the state of dairy farming in Sullivan County, than a Sullivan County dairy farmer?
2: My name is Amy Irwin um i've been a farmer in sullivan county for over 40 years um mostly we worked uh, dairy for almost 30 years um we sold our cows a little while ago maybe 10 years or so ago um we noticed that the dairy industry was kind of failing around here and we thought maybe we would change it up a little bit knowing that we'd been in it for a while and um You know, didn't quite see the future in it. Um, Our kids didn't really want to get into the farming industry, which we were okay with, you know, a little disappointed, but okay with. Um, Since then, um, I've um, been trying to convert the farm into other enterprises, um, which a lot of farmers are doing. Um, I'm also very active in uh, the community. Um, My other women friends that are farmers. We started the Sullivan County Farm Network several years ago, and that um, produced uh, many agritourism events um, that we were very proud of. Um, I've also uh, am vice president on the board of our local extension, uh, Cornell extension office. And uh, I am currently working with the Delaware Highlands Conservancy on uh, their land protection committee trying to conserve wildlands and farmlands.
0: So you mentioned that in the years since you sold your your cows, you've worked to convert the farm into other enterprises. So what does that kind of end up looking like?
2: Well, mostly it's um, the uh, selling of hay. Um, we make a lot of hay, both square and round bales, and sell that. Um, we also um, have a very large garden um that I can and preserve a lot of food for myself and for other family members and, and some neighbors. Um, and uh, we board um uh cattle for my brother-in-law, who is still a dairy farmer right mm-hmm. next door to us. And we board his dry cows and um some heifers and things like that. And then I take care of those um while my husband works off the farm because we needed health insurance. So he works off the farm and I take care of generally around 70 cows um, over the winter. And um, uh, that helps out my my brother-in-law with their dairy farm.
0: If you're if you know health insurance wasn't a concern, would would your husband be working on the farm?
2: Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. He loves farming. He loves being on a tractor he loves um doing the field work he loves working with the animals he would love to be on the farm absolutely um you know but we needed to have health insurance and we needed to have another income to keep just to keep our farm so that's what we needed to do i don't know if you know but the average age for a farmer is around 60 years old wow so yeah and we're getting older we're aging out um so, you know, healthcare is becoming a very, uh, necessary thing to have. I mean, when you're young, you don't think so much about health insurance, but when you get that up in that age bracket, it becomes a concern, a major concern.
0: I had no idea that the, the average age of, of a farmer was that old. Is that, do you know if that's in New York or is that across the country?
2: Um, well, I, I also helped several years ago, um, uh, Um, Develop a farmland protection plan for the county. And at that time, um, 59.7 was the average age of a Sullivan County farmer. Of a Sullivan County
0: farmer. Wow.
2: Now, nationwide, that goes up pretty much every year. Hmm. So I know in nationally, it's around that as well. So we're right in that same bracket.
0: So, what does that mean for the future of agriculture in our community?
2: Well, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not, I can't tell the future, but it doesn't sound good because every year we get older and there's fewer and fewer of us. So that's a very big concern. Um, there's a there's a whole generation that is not becoming farmers.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious about that. You mentioned that your own kids weren't interested in going into farming, um, no. which it sounds like you have some feelings about. Um, <laughs> so why is it that, the, the generations that are coming into adulthood now don't want to go into this.
2: Um, well, I, I can't speak about a lot there. I've no, I know that on some farms in Sullivan County, there is a next gen that's going into it, but I think that's because they're not, they don't connect nationally. Like with dairy, you sell your, your milk to a co-op and that goes into a national milk system. Um, a lot of them where the Farm has a next generation coming up is because they've developed for a more local uh, market. Um, either that they play that it's it's a better way to make more money. So um, that generation is focused on working locally and developing that market instead of trying to go national, where there isn't a lot of mobility to increase what you do. Um, locally, you can and you find a market and you fill it and you can make a good living at it. And that's the way they go. Um, my own niece, who is, uh, lives next door to me, works at a dairy farm, is doing that. She's developing her own bottling plant and is maybe making ice cream. And she knows that just what her parents are doing is not going to sustain. So that's where a lot of them are going.
0: And, um, is that- and that's <sighs> the only
2: way as far as I can figure.
0: <laughs> yeah, so is that... What she's doing with, with creating, uh, you know, getting the, the tools and technology to create these, these value-added products, is mm-hmm. this the sort of part of the agro-tourism that you mentioned earlier?
2: Uh, that was part of our focus, yes. We wanted to focus on local farmers who were working sustainably and um, catering to a market right in their communities um, to help get better, wholesome food, not highly processed, to people so that they could live healthier and have healthier foods.
0: So maybe maybe I don't totally understand w- what agritourism means then. Would you mind just elaborating on, on what exactly that that is?
2: Well, agri- uh, most people do not know what farmers do. They don't have any comprehension about what we do and what it takes to do what we do. Um, so what we tried to do um, was to have local farmers Showcase what they do, um, whether it be dairy, whether it be working with sheep, goats, beef, uh, vegetables, whatever it was to tell people what it takes to produce that chicken that goes on your table, that produces those eggs that you use in your omelet, you know, whatever that takes, um, what that farmer does to get that to you. And um, a lot of people um, are, are just totally unaccustomed. They just, It's in the store. They see it. And they don't understand where it comes from. So that's what we tried to do is to educate people so that they know how important farming and farmers are in their communities.
0: Does that education mean bringing visitors to farms or does that mean going out into public spaces and and presenting something or, or, what does that usually end up looking like?
2: Well, a lot of times we, we connected with our local visitors association um, we went to um, many public areas and advertised um, in a lot of ways. We um, talked to schools about getting children involved. Um, the local extensions were very helpful. Um, any other um, agricultural community that we could talk to and get the word out is what we did. And and it worked very well.
0: And so a lot of local farms are actually bringing for lack of a better word, tourists onto their farm to, you know, see what they do.
2: There are, there are several that do that now. That's what they, um, you know, like pumpkin picking or apple picking Mm. or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, we had, you know, before this horrible COVID pandemic, um, there was usually a, um, farm that would have a, an event where, they would have vendors come in and um, from other local farms and show and just showcase the farm itself. And it increased uh, them selling their own products and got the word out about other farm products. And it was kind of a, uh, a network of things that worked together to get um, people to learn more about farmers and farming.
0: You mentioned the pandemic. I'm curious how that impacted local agriculture, but also specifically your work as a farmer.
2: Well, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting the way it worked. We, um, uh, like I said, I, am uh, uh, on the board at extension and people know that of me. So I would get a lot of calls about, you know, where can I learn to raise chickens? Um, I don't trust, you know, what I get in the store. Um, There has been a a huge uptick in people raising their own uh, vegetables. Um, How do I do that? Um, You know, just having chickens for eggs or for meat or, you know, where can I call a local farmer to get some beef or pork? Um, You know, we had a lot of requests because um, my husband and I raise our own turkeys, our own chickens, our pigs, uh, beef, In fact, there's very little that we have that we eat uh, every day that is not raised by us. Um, And we would get requests from people: "Can you raise this for me? Can you, you know, have this butchered for me? You know, that kind of thing." Um, It was very big (laughs) this past year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of other farmers um, that I talked to had the same instance: people coming to them to get food because for a while there, the food chain was disrupted by this.
0: Yeah, I can, um, you know, going into, you know, the local PEX market uh, back in the spring and just seeing just shelf upon shelf after shelf of, of just being empty was yeah. really scary. And it's one of those mm-hmm. things where I never imagined in my lifetime in the 21st century that we would see sudden food shortages in the United States. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about your work as a dairy farmer before you sold your cows. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously the dairy farming industry in our community, but small dairy farms across the country have been closing their doors year upon year upon year for, you know, over a hundred years. I'm curious. I mean, you said that you were a dairy farmer for decades. Did you feel like you saw this coming from a long way away when you were younger and working as a farmer?
2: Well, there were certain periods where there would be, I don't know if you'd call them purges, but there were a series of um, changes in the industry and either farmers adapted or they went out. Um, One of those was actually, and a big one, was when the government decided not to, um, continue with price supports for the dairy industry. That was big because that, uh, the private industries and cooperatives said, Oh, we can do it much better than you can, um, control the prices. Well, that was wrong because the prices became very volatile. So they would be great one month and next month they would drop. Um, you know, when David and I got out of uh, the business, when we sold our cows, we were making decent money, but, uh, you also have to balance that with the availability of animals, uh, uh the, sh- the trucking costs because farmers pay for their own trucking. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, the feed costs and things like that. Those are, those are things that you have to watch constantly. and when we got out we were making more than they are now um in fact it's it, it, i know just a few years ago farmers were making 19 dollars a hundred now they're making a little over 11. wow so you know and and we used to get you know in uh, talk from the the people in the know uh that said well you have to be a good manager well I can be a very good manager and not be able to make money when the price drops $8 uh, or more. (laughs) You just don't recover from that that quickly. And that's what would happen. It would go up and down and up and down and you just can't plan, you know, a business with the volatility of a market like that.
0: So why is the dairy market so volatile? I mean, it seems like dairy is one of those things that like, everyone kind of needs and everyone uses. It feels like our demand for it is in, in economic terms, relatively inelastic. I mean, if the price of dairy goes up a little bit at the store, I'm still gonna buy cheese. I'm still gonna buy milk and whatnot. I don't know if everyone else feels the same. I know there's other substitutes for dairy milk on the market now, but there's so many dairy products out there, I, why does that happen? That, that the price would fluctuate so much.
2: Well, that is the uh, very long discussion. Um, it comes from antiquated uh, pricing systems. It comes from the um, consolidating of the markets. I mean, there are only, I believe now two or three major producers of milk in the entire nation. So that makes it difficult. Um, you know when when my husband and I were much younger in the milk industry, you could shop to where to sell your milk. You can't do that anymore. Um, They tell you what they're going to pay you and you either like it or you don't sell your milk. So, you know, that's, that's a very different way to farm now. So and David and I did not want to have us told what we would get for our product. So um, it was either put out a very large outlay to um, convert to bottling our own milk, which at our age, uh, really wouldn't have paid um, or get out. So that was the choice that we made.
0: For listeners who aren't familiar with how exactly the logistical side of dairy production works, what exactly, how exactly does that work when, when, you know, you have milk on your farm, what's the the next step? Obviously the milk isn't just showing up in our grocery stores from there. It sounds like you're talking about some form of of middleman that you are then selling to. So can you just elaborate on on exactly how that works a little bit?
2: Well, um, what what was happening is that um, you sold either to a co-op or you were an independent seller. And what would happen is if you were an independent seller, like we were, You would sell to a processing facility and that would take care of where your milk was marketed. Um, we would have a trucking company come and pick up our milk and take it to a processing facility in New Jersey. And then it was distributed wherever they sold, they wanted to sell their milk. They took care of the marketing and selling of the product after it left our farm.
1: So Um, you're
0: responsible for paying for all the costs of the trucking And then that processing facility is paying you some price per hundred weight for your milk. Mm -hmm. Were you generally able to make a profit at the end of the day when you included all of those expenses, whether it's the feed, the trucking, the labor and everything else?
2: Well, it was difficult to do so. Um, You had to pay attention to where you got your feed, Mm -hmm. um, how much you paid for it. You had to um, make sure that, um, you know, your machinery was taken care of. Um, You didn't pay too much for diesel. You had to watch every penny in order to make any kind of profit margin. Um, We did a lot of um, stuff ourselves. I was able to take care of how our cows were fed, were bred. um, And my husband took care of all of the managing of the machinery and, and the crops. So it was a, a good balance for us to be able to watch how the money was spent. Um, and as I said, there were some months when you could make okay, and other months, not so much. So you never really quite knew how your you know, season was going to work, um, so especially with the weather. You know, we can't discount uh, climate change. Hmm. That's made it even more challenging for farmers now. Um, with crop losses and difficulties in the change in weather patterns.
0: Have farmers in Sullivan County noticed really significant changes in weather and climate over the last couple of decades?
2: Yeah, I've heard a lot of farmers discuss it. Um, we ourselves um, lost um, some farmland to flooding. Um, we had some major floods um, around our farm. And I know other farmers have had damage as well. Then of course you've got to repair that, and you know when floods happen, good soil gets washed away. So you know you can lose a significant part of you know your your planting areas, and you know how you manage your animals. Your animals could get you know hurt or lost as well. So you know it's a consideration.
0: So it sounds like unless you are uh, an extremely savvy uh, business-minded individual. As a dairy farmer, you know a, a relatively small dairy farmer today. Uh, you know, not maybe excluding like corporate dairy farms. You're kind of sunk. I mean, it, and it sounds like you were adding up every single, you know, squeezing every penny out of this. Yeah. Wow. Um,
2: you would be amazed at the amount of uh, talents you would need, um, as far as the sciences, business management, um, mechanical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, veterinary um, uh, sciences that you need to know in order to work a farm. It's a lot that you have to know. Um, thankfully, there are some agencies that, that are a good help to you, um, but you've got to know where to go and where to get help when you need it, if you don't know it yourself.
0: So, So moving on, I remember a couple of years ago, there was some local news about dairy farms. There were several dairy farms. I think six of them in Sullivan County who suddenly lost their contracts with processing facilities. Mm. Um, so, from what I remember reading at the time, those dairy farms were ones that had opted not to partner with a cooperative. They were ones that were selling directly to a processing facility. Yes, um, and that. For me at the time, I remember like Googling this and trying to figure out, oh my gosh, what's a cooperative? How does all of this work? What is all of this? Um, Could you talk a little bit about the difference between selling directly to a processing facility or working with a cooperative and what exactly a dairy cooperative is?
2: I I guess one way to say it is how they wanted to consolidate um, milk processing in the country. Um, Many of the cooperatives started out with being groups of farmers who got together to use their power as a group to sell their milk. Um, That changed over the years. And the cooperatives became more along the line of marketing the milk itself instead of getting someone to buy it from the group of farmers. So um, when there was problems um, with our independent processor, Uh, someone was stealing money from it. And nearly mm-hmm. bankrupt it. So uh, the uh, cooperative came to us and asked us if we wanted to join them, which was not something that we wanted to do. Because at that point, we didn't feel that they protected the farmers enough at this stage. Um, they, what exactly
0: does that mean, that, that a well, cooperative isn't looking out for farmers?
2: Because the cooperatives got away, in my opinion, from helping the farmers get good prices for their milk. Um, instead, they went to making money on the milk for the cooperative instead of for the farmer. And um, so I didn't really get that involved with cooperatives. Um, even my, my brother-in-law was one of those that could had to dump milk for a while there. He was one um, because they were independent and the processors simply, didn't want to take the milk. They said that there was too much, and they couldn't find. Um, you know, at that point, it was the the COVID pandemic, and um, the supply and the demand were not meshing. So they had to dump milk. Now they've since then found another processor to sell to, but my brother-in-law is another one who just wanted to remain independent. Um, I know several other farmers that are parts of cooperatives and. They seem to be okay with them, but I and uh, my husband and I never f- found that they pr- they would be working for the farmer instead of working for the cooperative. You know, um, it just didn't seem right to us. And you have to pay a lot of dues and the trucking and everything. They don't they don't come to bat for the farmer enough, and, and in my opinion.
0: So at the end of the day, the price the farmer is getting. For milk, when they're selling to a cooperative, it sounds like would be substantially lower than the price that they might be getting when they're selling directly to a processing plant. But
2: they're getting Somewhat. some
0: security out of that.
2: Somewhat, um, yes.
0: Do you feel that the the actual demand for milk in our community has changed much over the years? Um. Or milk and milk based products as well.
2: Well, I think. Um that people are becoming more health conscious. Mm. Um, and there is a debate amongst a lot of people as to how healthy milk really is. Um, to me, it is whether or not, um, a, a, the type of milk that you drink, um, for me, highly processed milk is not good for you. Um, I, I drink raw milk. I have since I was a little girl, um, I don't, you know, say that that is for everyone. Um, but for, for me, I like to drink, uh, um, whole milk and eat whole foods. Um, I don't, I don't like highly processed foods, um, and processed milk t- to me. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I know someone who drinks 1% milk. Why? why do you drink that (laughs) and just drink water or drink milk? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, But I know some people have um, uh, had drank different milk, uh, like almond milk, Mm. soy milk. Those things have come to the fore. Um, I argue with that phrasing because to me, it's not milk. It is juice. Um, So it's deceiving in the way that they market it. But um, for some people who have allergies, it's a good alternative. Um, but I, I don't think that um, people understand the way to eat whole foods and how it can be good for you and not necessarily be weight gaining or anything like that. It's, it's really people understanding diets and dietary um, ways of eating it's, it's a difficult thing to figure out. Um, I know a lot of people that want locally grown milk. That's become, um, a big thing in my area. And, um, I know one of my good friends, um, sells milk off the farm, raw milk off the farm. And a lot of people really love that milk. Um, and it's good for you. Um, and you can look up all of these things uh, to find out their health benefits and detriments, if you will. Um, and a lot of other people make yogurts and all kinds of other good things from dairy products. And I'm really in, uh, very happy to see the growth in that. Uh, so uh, I think that's, that's a big part of um, keeping dairy products going, is that the local people manufacturing it.
0: So the milk that we buy... In in a store, usually, Mm
2: -hmm. it
0: will say pasteurized and homogenized on it. Yes. What exactly does that mean?
2: Well, pasteurization um, is a process that kills the bacteria that can be harmful in milk. Um, If you've got clean cows and you take good care of them and feed them well, um, that is not going to be a major concern. Um, But there are these bacteria in any you know, um, right. fluid milk. Um, and over time they can multiply and be a problem. So they discovered that pasteurization, um, makes things more shelf stable. Hmm. Now there's, you can do a low pasteurization or high pasteurization. Most store that you, uh, store-bought milk is high pasteurization. Um, low pasteurization is closer to raw milk. Um, it makes, um, it kills the harmful bacteria, but it doesn't fracture, um, many of the other good parts of the milk, as uh, is fat and, and other things that your body can recognize when it digests it. Um, homogenization is mixing the fat so that it doesn't separate hmm. as much. Um, now if you buy, for instance, my niece's milk, um, you're going to see that cream on the top because it's not homogenized. Um, so you get the cream on the top.
0: And is there any great reason why we homogenize milk? I mean, it sounds like some people would have a preference for cream on the top. Why, how did we get away from that?
2: Um, again, it's a money-making thing. If you can uh, get milk into a facility, take off all the cream. That is your primary money maker right there because oh. that goes into making um, ice creams and cheeses and heavy cream, which you can charge a lot more for. Um, and then the rest you can, you know, process into the milk. Got it.
0: I was just reading some of the reports for, for New York state on dairy farms. And, and the most recent statistics I could find were 2018. And, yes. and at the time, New York dairy farms were averaging an $8.83 net loss per 100 weight of mm-hmm. of milk. So to an outsider that sounds like a staggering loss considering that when we say 100 weight a 100 pounds of milk and as you said a, a healthy cow can can create 80 plus pounds of milk a day so a farm even not a huge dairy farm is creating many many 100 weight of milk even in a single day and losing mm-hmm. that much money per 100 weight sounds crippling. So it would, with numbers like that, how do we have any dairy farms left in New York state? I mean, I know you said it fluctuates a lot, but that's, that's tough.
2: Well, you also have to look and you can look these up in the USDA is the amount of debt a farm carries.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, You will notice that a lot of farms are carrying a lot more debt. And again, that goes back to the pricing volatility um, when the government had price supports, you could plan for a year, you know, they could tell you, this is what your support's going to be. It may go up and may go down, but only a little, you know, there's a couple of dollars here or there. Um, and you could, you know, uh, plan better how to buy your feed, um, how much hay you're going to need, um, you know, and all of those things that go into making that gallon of milk.
0: And when you say price supports, you just mean that the government's kind of controlling the market by saying this is the price you will be receiving for 100 weight of milk?
2: Well, this is the price that we're going to support you at, which means if you are getting more than this, great. If it goes below that, you're going to get that from I the see. government. Okay. Yeah. So you could, you could depend on that. Um, and when that went away, you couldn't depend on that, so you couldn't really plan how to manage your farm month to month. It was much more difficult.
0: So, is it normal for dairy farms in our region to just carry a lot of debt?
2: Yes, yes, it is. Unfortunately,
0: someone who would who would consider themselves to be like a, a strict, uh, like kind of laissez-faire free market uh, sort of person might look at the situation that local dairy farmers are in and have been in for a little while, both in our region and across the country, Mm -hmm. and say, well, if dairy farmers in in this small scale are up to their eyeballs in debt and they're struggling to get by and they're they're often operating at a loss, theoretically, they should go under corporate dairy farms with thousands and thousands and thousands of cows um, who have economies of scale to their advantage, who can make milk incredibly cheaply um, out in the Midwest where it's just really flat and they can have these huge dairy farms. Um, Those farms should be the farms that, you know, win the day and should, should be essentially supplying all of our milk for milk and, and other dairy products. What's the argument against that?
2: Well, there's a couple. Um, In communities like ours, it's a small rural community. That community relies on industries like farming. It brings in huge economic numbers Mm -hmm. and a lot of other businesses rely on it. Um, So if the farmers go, so do those um, industries as well. Um, Feed companies and uh, hardware stores, lumber stores, because farmers don't travel to shop. They shop locally. Right. So um, as close to home as they can, because they can't really travel that far. Um, so these are important industries that rely on farming and agriculture just to keep that community viable. Um, and, um, you know, there may, big corporate farms, some of them are doing very well. They they do it well. They do it right. They they use composting techniques. They, you know, they, they take good care of their animals. And I applaud that. But it's also easy um, because we found this out in in Europe quite a few years ago, that if you do something wrong and animals get sick, sickness can travel quickly um, throughout these farms and you can lose a lot. And if you have a problem in these big farms and you lose several big farms, that's a big interruption in the food chain. Mm -hmm. So keeping um, smaller farms viable as well as bigger farms is really important.
0: pause there today to give ourselves a chance to digest these conversations, but we'll be back with a second installment on dairy farming this coming week, where we'll focus on dairy policy and some concrete steps that can be taken to help keep local agriculture alive. Thank you to both John Conway and Amy Earlewine for joining us today, and as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, this is Close to Home, and you are listening to WJFF Radio Catskill.